From Bristol, UK, I'm Pommy Harmer. And I'm Melissa Shemam, and this is The Quarantini. We're bringing you this podcast every week to keep your spirits up and until the COVID crisis in the UK has ended. As with every week, today we'll bring you a mix of ingenious responses to the virus, creative ideas for the future, and a little dash of the unexpected. We'll start by uh, giving you the credit for that beautiful music. It's from the Old Bones Collective. It's called Hot Flu. And thank you so much to Seb Gutierrez for letting us using that piece of music for our opening. Hello and welcome back. Coming up in the show this week, we have a fascinating interview with Guy Standing about universal basic income. In the second part of the show, we'll bring you our brief roundup of exciting responses to the coronavirus from all over the world. And as a dash of something exciting to finish with, we've got music from an up and coming band called Make Friends. But now it's time for our interview. Yes, this week we're talking about the benefits of the universal basic income. We're talking with Professor Guy Stending, who's from uh, SOAS University. He's one of the first and key thinkers of this concept. He's worked around it since the 1980s, can you imagine? Um, he explains to us how this new form of benefits could help all of us in society, and especially now, to survive the multiple crises that we're going through your very well aware of that. So first, for instance, he justified the urgent need for UBI by the fact that we all find in um, society, we all come here and find benefits and wealth that were built by our common ancestors. But obviously, we don't benefit from that in the same way. So UBI would be a way to redistribute the shared sum of knowledge and wealth collectively. I've been able to talk to Guy from his holiday home in Italy, so just pay attention, the sound might not be as great as we wanted, but thank you to him so much for taking the time. I first started advocating basic income uh, in the 1980s when Thatcherism and Reaganism was pushing for a much more flexible, open uh, economic system. And it was quite obvious at the time that this was going to generate far more insecurity and far more inequality. And that the old beverage style of welfare state was not suited to this new reality. And it seemed to me fairly obvious that the optimum way was to give people basic security as a human right, as a citizenship right, as a right of being a resident in a society. So I think that was my initial attraction to basic income. But over the years, it's become very obvious that one can justify it for ethical reasons. Essentially, as you just mentioned, the wealth and income of every single one of us, you and me included, has far more to do with the efforts and achievements of the many, many generations before us than anything we do ourselves. And if we allow for private inheritance of private wealth, which is a lot of something for nothing for a very small minority, if you think about it, then it is a very good case for saying that a basic income is like a social dividend on the public wealth that's been generated. Because you and I and all of us, we don't know whose ancestors contributed more or less to our wealth. And the most fair way of giving the sense of a social inheritance 
is to treat us all as equals in that respect. The idea of a basic income is that everybody in society whose usual residence in Britain or wherever would receive an equal amount paid regularly without conditions as an economic right. And if you wished, you could tax back from the wealthy by increasing the marginal income tax or by a wealth tax or whatever. But, but essentially, it converts something into a, an economic right. And that, I think, is a fundamental justification for it. And the freedom that comes with having a basic income, the freedom to say no. One of the things that we've found in our pilots around the world is that quite often uh, women who start receiving their individual basic income walk out of abusive relationships. Whereas before, because of financial necessity, they had stayed in those relationships. I think that's freedom. And the third, the third ethical reason is that basic income gives security. And that linked with a theme that I've played on and found, discovered in doing our pilots in India and Africa. Basic security is a human need. It's a public good. Yeah, absolutely. You've done a lot of research on on this project, on this idea, on this implementation. You mentioned uh, your work in India and Africa. And your research really shows that, A, if people have a basic income, they don't stop working. They can actually invest in their own project, become more entrepreneurial, more stable, and have more skills, get more education. But also it shows that it is doable financially for most states in the world, not only the wealthiest country. Am I right? That's correct. I mean, the, the, the affordability argument is just prejudice. And it comes from people who actually don't want people to have basic security and so on. Because it's always a matter of priorities in societies. You can either spend it on private missiles or you can spend it on basic income, for example. But more importantly, we give out fantastically large sums of money in forms of subsidies. And huge numbers of tax go to people who are not poor by any standards. One of the scandals in Britain, for example, is that there are 1,156 different forms of tax relief which benefit middle and upper income groups. And subsidies include huge subsidies to large-scale landowners. The, the largest landowner in, in Britain inherited, didn't do a single day's work for it, he inherited 277,000 acres of prime land. And each year, he gets well over a million pounds in subsidy from the government for doing nothing, absolutely nothing. And to say that we can't afford to give 100 or 200 pounds a week to all our citizens, while we're giving out millions, and I'm talking about many millions, to affluent groups for doing nothing, is, is just hypocritical to the extreme. So that clearly shows that we, a country like Britain, we don't even have to raise taxes to just, just changing the priorities of how we spend public money. I do actually believe that we need to have tax reform in Britain and that we should shift from taxing earned income to taxing wealth. Uh, wealth is mainly inherited. In other words, it's money gained from doing nothing. You haven't worked for it, you haven't earned it. 
There's no evidence that it's justifiable economically or morally, and we don't tax wealth. And the inequality of wealth is much, much, much greater than the inequality of income. So the, the sensible thing would be to shift the taxation system away from taxing earnings to taxing wealth. And of course, we need a carbon tax. We need to discourage the consumption of fossil fuel energies and so on. If we said at the same time that all the revenue of a carbon tax is going to be recycled in the form of a basic income, then of course, a carbon tax would become progressive. In other words, reduce inequality in society. There are a number of tax reforms that are needed. And anybody who says we can't afford a basic income is either deluding other people or is deluding himself. It is not a fair statement. I believe that what we should establish is a commons fund, the capital fund for paying out a gradually rising level of basic income, which will be independent of the government. You've got to depoliticize the amounts that's awarded. But the benefits are so strong, particularly in a time of pandemics, that that's the, I think the arguments are actually being won. Yes, so obviously it's even more key now because we live in a time where most people, organizations, charities, governments are looking for solutions to prevent such crisis to repeat again. We already had this conversation when the financial crisis hit 12 years ago. It was completely unsolved. And now that we know that the kind of house crisis that we have is bound to repeat itself, your research really shows as well that it is affordable. It is financially possible. It also solves a lot of other social problems. It would tackle homelessness. I mean, it would almost make it impossible. It also encouraged people to work. Like it really shows through your experience that all the arguments around idleness or addiction, gambling are not provable. So what do you think we need now to transform that desire, this argument, this knowledge into political action? Coincidentally, my book came out in March this year. And the argument of the book was that we have had a a gradual shift of the economic system in Britain and around the world into what I call rentier capitalism. More and more of the income is going to the owners of property, financial property, physical property, intellectual property. And the precariat that's been growing is facing stagnant or declining real wages, living bits and pieces lives. And basically the argument was that this is a time of transformation potentially in which we've seen the emergence of what I call these eight giants that makes the economic system and society incredibly fragile. And I've argued that the pandemic is the trigger rather than the cause of the pandemic slump that we're experiencing now in the extreme. Eight giants are inequality, insecurity, which is affecting millions and millions of people, private debt, which is horrendously large in Britain and elsewhere, stress, which is linked to all of the previous giants, and you have precarity, the sense that people feel they're losing the rights of citizenship and they feel like supplicants. And then we have the automation which is coming, which could be wonderful, but at the moment, because of all the other circumstances, it's a threat. And then you have extinction, the biggest threat, and we need strategies and policies that would help 
One of the beauties of basic income is it would encourage people to spend more time on work that is reproducing our society, reproducing ourselves, care work, voluntary work, community work, all the sorts of work that don't get recognized by mainstream economists. They're not in our statistics as work. They're ignored. A basic income would enable us to spend more time doing that sort of work. And of course, the number eight giant is this sense of populism. We've seen it with Donald Trump. We've seen it with a whole lot of nasty politicians emerging in various places. But you can see that if people are fearful, if they're insecure and they feel the system is letting them down, they might drift to support the simplicities of populists. And we're seeing at the moment with this pandemic that people are not able to respond. And unless we move to a basic income system, I don't believe we will recover from this pandemic or a series of pandemics that are coming down the road. We are learning the lesson painfully that the resilience of society, the resilience of all of us depends on the resilience of the weakest members of our society time for revolutions, where we introduce suitable measures for a profoundly different era than in the past. Again, it's just a matter of choice. There are no obstacles at the moment. The obstacle is mm-hmm. political. I think that everybody needs basic security, and it is something that a rich country like Britain should be ashamed of not having, uh, because we can do it. My last question is just to, to keep people a bit optimistic. Is like, you've been campaigning for this for years. What sort of advice would you give to people who would just now, through this podcast or your latest TED Talk, discover the idea of universal basic income? Uh, should they educate, talk about it, pressure government, sign petition? I mean, because I think there is this little sense that it's a great idea for some people, but it, it feels like it's the political obstacle that just mentioned is too immense. So how can we just make people a bit more attached to the idea that we shouldn't give up? First of all, I would say uh, join Bien, the Basic Income Earth Network. It's free to join. I would say to all of us that come next May, which is the next round of elections in Britain, we would say, look, we will only vote for partisan candidates that are supporting basic income. At the moment, the Greens, the Dems, I think, the SNP have all come out strongly in favour. And I would say, look, the Labour leadership is sitting on their hands. Shame on them. I know that several of them told me personally that they strongly support basic income. Well, it's about time they stood up and showed their backbone. I think that we have the duty to our loved ones, our communities, ourselves, to stand up and do our little bit. Uh, None of us are that important, but collectively we can make a huge difference. So that was Professor Guy Standing from SOAS University, a specialist on universal basic income, who actually has released a few books about the subject. So go on his website, Bien, B-I-E-N. There's a lot more information if you have questions about how UBI can come about, who's deciding how much we could get, in which country, at what age. There's a lot of questions raised. I've got 
a lot of people asking me about this, but there's a lot out of dairy. You also did a lot of TED talks. So it's, I think it's important. I think it's quite relevant for our time. It might not be in place forever, but because we are in economic crisis, health crisis, and it's really hard to make that both ends reconcile. It's an idea that's been around for some time now, hasn't it? But it's really gaining traction, I think, at the moment. Okay, it's now time for our weekly roundup. Let's start local. What have you got, Melissa? Yes, I wanted to mention the Cycling Sisters. So they are a group of women who are supporting other women in encouraging them to, you know, take on a bike because maybe in their community it's not that easy. It started with an Eastern resident and a member of the Bristol Muslim Cultural Society and they formed that group uh, particularly to talk to women facing cultural or religious barriers to cycling. The Cycling Sisters now have around 17 members and they are running sessions for women who want to learn to cycle for the first time. So you can do that with the group and ride with people who have a bit more confidence. This has really changed life for many women, not only in this country, but we've mentioned this in other countries, haven't we? Yeah, we've been big on promoting cycling in the Crown City Podcast. We really have. I still don't cycle, by the way, but <laughs> I speak they can work everywhere. So now this week has seen loads of venues around Bristol lit up in red. It's not just Bristol, it's all over the UK, but we've been taking part here. This is a campaign in the form of an art installation to encourage the government to give more support to the beleaguered events industry. Dozens of events professionals stood in silence on College Green this week and their message was a really strong one. Without immediate and meaningful financial support, the UK's live events sector supply chain is at risk of collapse. So all of those who took part were dressed in black with red masks to reinforce that they stand on guard of their industry, which many, many fear will cease to exist if the help isn't given. And the venues that lit themselves up in red across Bristol included the main venue, Colston Hall, which we know is about to change its name, the Hippodrome, the Louisiana, St George's, they're all lit up to support the campaign and joining other venues across the UK in a colourful display of solidarity. Yeah, that's a great initiative. I was there in St. George's when it happened. I was aware of it through social media, but I think they're going to make other um, events. So if you want to help and, and follow, just you can also click on the hashtags, we make events or light in red and especially support the people in the, in the event industry that are not like on the stage or on the front line, all the workers behind the scene doing an incredible job and being actually totally, totally in crisis at the moment. We really think of you guys. Another initiative that we wanted to mention is called Poetry in the Pandemic. It's a project aims uh, to engage young people in creative writing. It started in southeast London in Levisham and it challenges young people in, in the borough to use creative writing to address issues such as, of course, social isolation. The Levisham Young Writers will deliver a thousand creative care packages, including writing and arts material to these young people living locally. The project will also offer free online creative writing workshops led by Young People's Laureate like Teresa Lola and Otis Sharna Jackson and artist Olivia Twist. And actually a survey launched by mental health charity Young Minds found that more than 80% of young people with a history of mental illness have found their condition worsened during the coronavirus crisis, obviously. 
And it's quite well proven that creative writing can be immensely cathartic. So uh, you can check online what they're doing, but you can also start your own. What do you think, Pommy? I think it's really, it's a really good idea, isn't it? And it's just another project that's led by young people. And we, we've been bigging up the ingenuity of young people on this podcast, haven't we? And there's another one that I've found, uh, a man called Tom Marland, who's the politics and international relations student here at Bristol University. Together with five of his friends, he's created a new website called the Lockdown Index. Now, this is ideal. It's just perfect for anyone who's thinking of going on holiday abroad because it provides you with the information about travelling abroad. The website shows which countries have open, closed or restricted borders. It tells you about the current status of airports, bars, restaurants, nightclubs and it gives the rules on each country's coronavirus quarantining and testing regulations. So, it's really, really hard to keep up with them as they change with only hours' notice, as we've recently seen in this country for families coming back from the Netherlands and France and will now have to be in quarantine very soon. Uh, it sounds like a huge job to me to keep on top of that, but really welcome. If you're thinking of a holiday, have a look at the lockdown index before you book anything. So useful. I wish I had been able to have that lately because, as you know, I have friends all over Europe and everybody was so stressed with, can I go to Spain now? Can I see my mom in Italy? Because sometimes, you know, you blame people for being selfish and taking holidays, but they have to simply reunion with people who are very dear to them and it's become really difficult. Like I know friends who have... And their daughter is now stuck in France and they have to rush her back. So well done, Tom, for this um, lockdown index. I wanted to mention another initiative in Scotland, a uh, plan to plant 100,000 trees in the Highlands were obviously jeopardised very heavily by the lockdown. But thanks to volunteers, they stayed on track. It means that in this place um, of the Scottish Highlands, the volunteers working for Three for Life, that's the name of their charity, have decided to voluntarily isolate themselves at the charity rewilding estate to, in order to continue planting those trees. Isn't it, isn't it fantastic? So they, That's really, really good. They all went to um, this part of the forest to grow the seeds, and that includes uh, seeds of trees like scot pine, rowan, um, hazel, holly and oak and even very rare species such as the dwarf birch and the woolly willow. And The, the woolly willow? Don't you just want to see the woolly willow? I want to see them all. Um, I love trees and I can't be grateful enough for people doing things like this. So they just cut out themselves from their normal life to keep on doing this. And Doug Gilbert, the manager at Trees for Life, said simply, nature is not in lockdown. So all these precious trees have been coming into leaves now and we need to take care of them. Well, wow, that's beautiful. Okay, so moving right the way across the other side of the world, we travel to Japan. And Twitter has saved an old noodle shop from bankruptcy. As we know, so many, many local businesses all over the world have suffered with many, many fewer people eating out. And as a last resort, this particular restaurant owner started tweeting about their plight. And he told followers that the restaurant was still delivering fresh soba noodles and asked people to give them a call. Well, this tweet went viral and got reposted 12,500 times over a few days. And 
they went from being extremely anxious about impending bankruptcy to worrying about how on earth they were going to fill the 200 orders a day they were getting. So that is the power of social media, isn't it? That's a great story. I mean, I have a second life on Twitter, so I can imagine how efficiently it could work. And now I want to taste those soba noodles. I don't know if they'll send you any from Japan, but you do have a second life on Twitter, which I know about. It's n- nothing nothing really exciting, but yeah, do follow us there. We have a quarantine podcast and we're both there like trying to spread good, useful news. Anyway, in the other part of the world, in Central Africa, in Gabon, a giant pangolin named Ghost could now help save the whole species. Now, Pommy, do you remember pangolins, right? I mentioned them before. I have a soft you spot. You love pangolins. Yeah. It's not like I've met pangolins in real life, um, but I have a soft spot for them since I, I kind of walked with Extinction Rebellion last year in London and got to learn how endangered they are. I mean, there are only a few in the world. So this new research program over there in, in Gabon uh, is identifying... Um, isotopic fingerprint of the animal. It is the world most trafficked mammal and it's obviously uh, because of smugglers. So this group of researchers called Wildlife Capture Unit has indeed caught one giant pangolin in this Central African country, the biggest on record, and they have nicknamed him Ghost, which is funny for me because he weighs 38 kilograms and measures 1 meter 72 that's quite that's quite impressive. Not wow, very ghostly to me. That's, that's my height. Yeah. It's the same length as it's very I am tall. high. Most of the pangolins I've seen photographs were half of that, if not less. But the team have got eco guards, indigenous tracker and field biologists, plus a wildlife vet. And they now hope that ghost, this lovely pangolin, will give them a viable insight into their fight against poaching. Um, so as I was saying, um, pangolin are really endangered because they are the only scaly mammal in the world and the body are covered with razor-sharp overlapping keratin plates and that is yes. very precious in some part of the world and including China where they are used as ingredient in traditional Chinese medicine and this is probably also linked to the coronavirus very strongly because we know that the pangolin and the bat have been one of the animals because they are not supposed to be so close to us and they resist really well to coronaviruses that have overlapped this disease into our world. So we should dub- doubly work to protect them. It's a wonderful piece of news. And we've covered them before, haven't we? Because I remember you talking about how they were taken off the list of... of um ingredients for Chinese medicines. It's going to take a while before everybody, you know, stop doing it, but it's there's there's been a low implemented in China. When I think of pangolins, Melissa, I'll always think of you from now on. You know, and it's so cute. You have to watch them online. They can they can roll their body in order to protect themselves like a ball. <laughs> they have this funny face as well. <laughs> anyway. Now it's time for a dash of something even more exciting than pangolins. We have music from a young and new artist. Tell us all about it. So yes, as in this new seasons, we both, I think, wanted to highlight artists and especially musicians because even if art galleries and some you know, venues might reopen, live music is really still at a standstill. It's quite difficult. We've mentioned earlier on the Red Alert initiatives and We Make Advance. And 
so since last week we've been supporting young and creative artists with a partnership with the great uh, Fennel Music. It's a mental-led music company working with new and emerging artists and they say the mission is to develop artists to a professional standard um, towards recording, production, management, even if you know they only sign with small labels. So the group that I've chosen for this week is called Make Friends. How does that sound, right? And Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, we all want to make friends, even though we have to still social distance. But they're a new uh, four-piece from Bristol. Funnel Music works with a lot of Bristol artists, even though not only. And they are into a progressive indie pop sort of music. And they say, you know, that they mix, try to mix that with infectious groovies and echoes of bands such as Bombay Bicycle Club or False and Virginia Wing. Uh, the magazine Bristol in Stereo called them exciting new indie pop. They have actually recorded with Invader Studios, uh, that, a studio that belongs to Jeff Barrow uh, here in Bristol, and with an um, acclaimed musician, released an EP last year, and then a new single very recently this summer called Knowing Makes It Worse. Well, actually it doesn't, but you know what I mean. Have a listen. band make friends thanks to funnel music thank you so much for letting us play that track it was called knowing makes it worse that's it for the quarantini this week we'll be back next week with a new cocktail of ideas and positive news for you all in the meantime we'd love to hear from you so please send us ideas stories and music by emailing us for instance at the quarantini podcast at gmail.com and you can also get hold of us on facebook twitter and instagram this episode was hosted by me melissa shimam and was hosted and produced by me pomi Harmer. thank you for listening and stay safe